You're listening to Byzantine Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture in collaboration with the Melkite Eparchy of Newton. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and director of the Institute and host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video for the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. Welcome to all of our participants here for uh, Meet Fair Sunday, the Sunday of the Last Judgment We'll be taking a look at the gospel text of Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. So let's, uh, let's do that. Let's get out our Bibles. And um, I've got my Bible buried way over here. Okay. Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 20. Everybody get out your Bible. Here we go. Father Sebastian, that cell phone I see over there. Yeah. <laughs> Matthew chapter 25, verse 31 through 46. Chapter 25, verse 31 through 46. The Lord said at that time, when the Son of Man shall come in his majesty and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. And before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate them one from another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, blessed of my father, take possession of the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you covered me. Sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the just will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And, they, and answering the king will say to them, Amen, I say to you, every time you did it for one of these, the least of my brethren, you did it for me. Then he will say to those on his left hand, Go away from me, accursed ones, into the everlasting fire which was prepared for the devil and his ministers. For I was hungry, and you did not give me to eat. I was thirsty, and you did not give me to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer and say, Lord, when do we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison? Do not care for you. And then he will answer them, saying, Amen, I say to you, as long as you did not do it for one of the, these least ones, you did not do it for me. And these will go into everlasting punishment, but the just into everlasting fire. Father, these are uh, pretty strong words by Jesus separating the sheep and the goats. I mean, this is a story that is a story of the ages in the sense that it has this application, obviously, the, the, the way the Lord teaches in this, this kind of cosmic way. Just give us before, I want to jump in and ask some particulars about this text, especially regarding kind of trying to get on the ground there in Palestine and hear our Lord say this and kind of look around and see what it was like. But first, 
context in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, where does, this, where does this text fall in the story of the gospel itself? And why is it that Jesus is talking about it now? So it's a complex passage because of the context. Jesus has just prophesied about the coming destruction of Jerusalem in the previous chapter, in chapter 24. And he, he said, within one generation, this is all going to take place. Not one stone will be left upon another. And these will be the signs that will accompany that. And most people are familiar with it. You know, the sun will be dark and the moon not give its light. Flee mm-hmm. the hills. Woe to those who are, you know, a child in those days and pray that it's not in the winter on a Sabbath. Most people are familiar with this. This is the idea. This is a prophecy by Jesus about the coming destruction, which will happen within one generation. 70 AD, 40 years later from Jesus saying this, it occurred. So the prophecy, though, in chapter 24 spills over into these parables in chapter 25. And each one of these parables seems at least originally to be in the original context to be related to that destruction of Jerusalem. Who is going to be following the way of the Lord when these events take place? And who's going to be saved? Who's going to die in eternal fire? Jerusalem is burned up. But from a very early stage, and we can even see here in the text, very early stage in the church, this was also seen as a type or an image then of, of our final judgment. And so this is appropriate here in the, in the context, especially what we're talking about today, because this is at the end, the very, very end of Jesus's earthly ministry. He's in Jerusalem. He's done all the preaching. He's done all the teaching. He, and he has his followers. There's those who have heard and seen. And those who are following him or those who have heard and, and, and seen what he has done have to make a choice now with the information they've been given. And so then, then we come to the Last Supper, which is in chapter 26. So this is right. Be, this is the, the, the very, very end, end, if you could say, of his earthly ministry. Galilee is over. He's in Jerusalem. He's now in the upper room or he'll be in the upper room in a second, prophesies about the structure of Jerusalem on Mount of Olives. And then shortly in the next passage, we see them uh, in the upper room celebrating the Last Supper. He gives these parables. Yeah. yeah. Well, Father, thank you for bringing or contextualizing this for us. I think your comments, especially about 70 AD, about the fall of Jerusalem and the original context in which these parables were given is helpful. Obviously, as you said, very early on, the Father is applied, and you can almost apply it right to Jesus' words as the fathers did to say he's talking about the second coming, but initially that second coming understood by the early Christians as the destruction of Jerusalem 70 AD. The reason I'm mentioning that is because when we, were, when we read the word king here, then the king will say, am I right that the audience is, is hearing the word Messiah? When the Messiah will say to those that, I mean, obviously, okay, the king is Jesus and so forth, but I think by making it, helping us understand what these people were hearing, when they're asking the question, who is this guy, <laughs> right, right in front of them, is, is this the Messiah? And then he says, when this, these things happen, and, and I think that's, there's a further application here then to 70 AD, that, that Jesus is talking very much about the church. He's very much talking about the life of the church, and I think this is important for us, we're not just looking off in the distance when we hear this text. We're not just saying, hey, I better get my life right before I die or before Jesus comes in his glory, but that 
he's very much talking about a reality in the life of the church as we stand, as, we, as they stood in 70 AD, and then as, they, as the church lived its life in the years following up to today. If I, could, if I interject there, just I was noticing in the text here, he refers to the, the sheep as the righteous ones, and the other ones don't even have a, they're not even called the cursed one, they're just, the, and the others. The righteous in Matthew's gospel means one who, it's like Joseph was righteous in chapter one, or um, your, your righteous must exceed that of a Pharisee in chapter five. Righteous means in the Jewish context to live in perfect accord with God's law, his Torah, Old Testament. New Testament is exactly, I think, where you're going with this. And that's why I want to point this out, is to live in perfect conformity then with God's revealed law, which is the word of God in the flesh, Jesus. So anyway, keep going there. Sorry. And... and- and when he's when when Jesus questioned about that law, of course his answer is the entire law is summed up in one reality, and that law is the law of love. And Jesus says that, of course, well, because it does sum up the law. The reason it sums up the law is because the law is the will of God for his people. And that will of God for his people is not something he's made up, you know, concocted, <laughs> but that it is the incarnation of who he is because we are made in his image and after his likeness. And, and therefore Jesus responds, if, if we're going to love, if we're, if we're going to live the law of perfection, it's going to be the life which God has lived from all eternity. The father pouring out his life into the son and the Holy spirit. And it's that, it's that reality that then becomes the, the icon, the calling of our entire life. Uh, and then we can apply that then here to what Jesus is saying about the life of this of the church. Now let's take a look at this. Uh, let's. I, I have a question for you that's probably gonna probably a little bit strange, but I think you, you of all people are gonna have a good insight on this. And and I think maybe we've talked about this a little bit before. I'm not sure, but Jesus seems to be down on the goats. And you know, you had a goat when we were kids, Rusty the goat. And, uh, and I think you might even have some goats now or maybe getting some goats soon. What's wrong with the goats? You know, I mean, they're, they're nice, right? I mean, why is Jesus nice. all down on the goats? <clears throat> so a lot of times when someone hears goat, they think of the devil. You know, in fact, how the goat or the devil is often, you know, drawn, you know, characterized like, you know, with horns and a little, you know, goat hooves and things. Well, beyond the artistic issues and that, that going back to the original context here, we do find in the Bible, we find here God's people ideal, ideally God's people are supposed to be like sheep and not like goats. But to be clear, it's not that goats are evil or something. Goats are created just like sheep are created by God. And in fact, this is often shocking for people. If you go back to the Passover in Exodus 12, the Passover lamb the animal used could be either from the goats or the sheep. They could use a kid goat or a lamb. Doesn't make any difference. So that we, we should certainly know that, you know, snakes and goats are not evil in and of themselves, but they are sometimes used as a, a symbol or an image of one who, of God's rebellious creation. And that is because of this issue here with the, the goats and the sheep and herding practices. When you herd sheep, you heard them from the front. You, if, you, if sheep 
the shepherd began, stands up. You know, we were when we would go down to Jericho when, on our pilgrimages. I remember the trip from Jericho, from Jerusalem down to Jericho. I always remember seeing over on the right. Typically, we see these. Sometimes you see the Bedouin camps and things. And usually, if you look, you'll see a shepherd under a little shade tree with five, you know, mangy goats or something, or some sheep out there. Well, when the shepherd, if he's got sheep, when he wants to move the flock, what he does, he stands up. And he makes sure the sheep see him and he starts walking to where he wants to go. And the sheep will actually, as long as he doesn't start running away, he sort of moves slowly. The sheep will start moving with him. And then he just walks. As soon as the whole flock's moving, they'll follow each other and the, and the front ones follow the, the shepherd. And then he takes them to where they, he wants them to go. Another spot where there's some nice grass. He sits down on a shade tree and they start eating again. But goats are, are different. Goats, when you heard them, I remember being in Jericho, in fact, when we were in Jericho, standing there, I remember as we were looking at the beautiful landscape, I saw down the hill, there was this little boy of Jericho herding his goats. Now, goats are herded like cats. And it was, it was hilarious watching this poor kid. He's, he's behind the flock of goats. He had about maybe 10 goats, max, five to 10 goats. But he, it took every bit of energy this little kid had. He was probably about eight, nine years old. And he's picking up rocks in his hand, gravel, and throwing them at the back of the goats. And the goats would then move along about, you know, five, ten feet. And then one would start to run off to the left to go for a little bush or something. But he wanted, to, he was trying to move them to the other hill. And as he moved them along, it took forever because they kept scattering. He would push from behind, waving his stick and whacking and throwing gravel and yelling at them. And they would kind of go, but then they would scatter. Then he had to run over here and run over here and kind of get them and then push them along again. And they kept wanting to go after bushes and weeds on the side. He had obviously some good pasture he wanted to get them to. But to get them to the good pasture for this poor kid was a massive amount of work because they, they didn't understand what his idea was and where he wanted them to go, and they didn't care. They each wanted to go off to that weed or that little bush, even though the pasture he was moving them to was certainly much more nu nutritious than what they were chasing after. It's quite a difference with the, the herding of the sheep and the goats. I was just reading um, a little passage in Father Schmeyman's uh his excellent work here on Great Lent, which I always keep on my desk during this time of preparation and then in the coming weeks and during the season of Lent. I encourage our participants, by the way, grab yourself a copy of this Great Lent, A Journey to Pascha, Father Alexander Schmeyman. He picks up on the same point for this, for this Sunday. He says, he says, Christianity is, is the religion of love. Christ left with his disciples not a doctrine of individual salvation, but a new commandment that they love one another. And he added by this shall all know that you are my disciples. If you love one another, love is thus the foundation, the very life of the church, which is in the words of St. Ignatius of Antioch, the unity of faith and love. Sin is always the absence of love and therefore separation or isolation. War of all against all. The new life given by Christ and conveyed to us by the church is, first of all, a life of reconciliation, of gathering into, ones, into oneness of those who are dispersed. 
Um, and I think you're, you, you know, it's so, it's, so, it's so great to hear you describe the kind of the pastoral vision the on the ground in the Holy Land, what this actually looks like. If you understand that, then I think you understand this better on a theological level. Not only that why Jesus is talking about sheep as the good ones and goats as the bad ones, but the purpose of the church as a whole and how this understanding of this unity of the flock of the sheep um, and its willingness to follow its shepherd is this icon of what the church is supposed to look like. And as we head into now this last week of preparation before our journey of Great Lent, the church places this whole thing before us intentionally, this image of what the church is supposed to look like. Sadly, sadly, a lot of times our parishes look more like the goats um, than the sheep. And, and I think you and I have experienced this and trying to trying as best we can to be kind of pastors, if you will. And you're looking around going, wait a minute, why, why aren't, why, why isn't this thing coming together? And this comes back to what I was asking before about this idea of the Messiah, about this whole thing applying to the church and to how I identify within the church, my place in the church. So I just, to bring all this to a close, this last phrase, I wonder if you could just comment on it. It says, amen, I say to you, every time you did it to one of these, the least of my brethren, you did it for me. And I think sometimes we hear that, that, that phrase, eh, that's nice, that's nice. But this is, has a deep sacramental impact, doesn't it? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, another example of something very similar to this is that conversion of Paul on the road to Damascus. Right? He's, he's going off, he's just killed Stephen, he's heading to Damascus, and he's going to go try and find more these heretic Christians that dragged him to Jerusalem to put on trial, and Jesus appears in a flash of light and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You know, so we, and, and there's other places where we see this in the, in, in the New Testament. In Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says that the church is the body of Christ. Also Ephesians 5, all over the place. But he says, but we are each individually its members. And of course, we enter into that mystical body of Christ, into that that mysterious union with him through our baptism, chrismation, and reception of the Holy Eucharist. Mm -hmm. You know, the, uh, there's, I've been recently, maybe in the last few months, more and more in, in my reading of St. Paul, reading of the saints, reading of the life of the early church, realize that the church has always first, first been charitable to its members in the sense that the love within the community here is the first step to authentic love out there. Um, the church is always in a sense cared for herself first. I, it might sound, this is why I've been kind of meditating on it. It sounds at first glance, it sounds in a sense almost selfish, self-serving, but not at all. The realization that here is one who has been fully restored in the image and likeness of God through their baptism and who I can see that image and likeness more fully. And, and so it's here that the unity of the life of the Trinity much must be restored. If this thing, which is the, the community of the church, 
union of the body of Christ is ever going to effectively do what it's supposed to do outside of itself. And here, I think this is a good example. Schmemann gets into this. He says, he says, look, Christ is not calling us to, uh, you know, create, you know, charitable works for humanity and you know, whatever, you know, these things, not that these things are bad. Uh, but first of all, uh, love is a very personal thing. The person in front of me, the person in the church next to me. I think this Sunday we have a, an opportunity to uh, begin the reconciliation that hopefully will be a process over the coming weeks and, and months. A reconciliation first with my brother and sister next to me, the person that the Lord has put in my life. Um, and, and not to condemn them. Um, notice that Jesus, that, that in this whole text, it's, it's not that the person isn't sick. It's how I come to them. Do I condemn them for their weakness in the person next to me? It's not that the person hasn't done something sinful in the, in, you know, in, in the church next to me. Uh, or it doesn't mean that they don't have a weakness. But it's that I'm coming to minister to them in love. And Jesus went to the blind and the, and the lame. And so it didn't condemn them for, their, for their, their illness, but ministered to them so that they could become what they were meant to be. Um, and, uh, and I think it's a, it's a good thing for us to meditate on in this, this coming Sunday is to look around and say, hey, who are these that are the sick, that are the poor, that are the thirsty, that are here right next to me? Not necessarily physically so, but maybe spiritually so. Uh, maybe uh, someone I've had an argument with or a division with within the church. Uh, and rather than continue to act like goats, let us begin to live the life of the sheepfold of Christ. Let's conclude with the uh, Kentuckian that's chanted in the church this Sunday. O God, when you shall come down upon earth in your glory, every creature shall tremble before you. A river of fire shall flow before your judgment seat. The books shall be opened and all secrets revealed. On that day, O just judge, deliver me from eternal fire and make me worthy to stand at your right hand. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Byzantine Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.